0: A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke, and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from art to literature, film and music, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's a brush with Ai Weiwei, an artist who in some ways needs no introduction. He's among the most famous artists in the world, principally due to the activism which led him to be incarcerated for months without charge in his native China in 2011. Since his release, he hasn't let up, and he continues to be a thorn in the Chinese. Government's side, relentlessly documenting and publicly speaking out against its attacks on freedom and manifold other human rights abuses. Weiwei was born in Beijing in 1957 and his father was the leading poet Ai Qing, once a comrade of Mao Zedong but later branded a rightist and interned with his family in labour camps, including one called Little Siberia in Xinjiang province, and forced to clean toilets. As Weiwei documents in his recent book, One Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows, the activism that led to his his own detention decades later was slow to emerge but is part and parcel of his art and has been in earnest for the past 15 years. He cites as a particular turning point a work he made in 2007 for the influential exhibition Documenta which happens every five years in Kassel in Germany. For Fairy Tale, as the work was called, he organised for 1001 Chinese people to travel to Castle for more than a month during the exhibition. It provoked all manner of interpretations about the isolation of Chinese culture from the world and the stereotyping of Chinese identity, about burgeoning globalisation and shifts in the movement of people, and about Fortress Europe and the continent's increasing anxieties about migrants and the other. Weiwei Wei has written that in terms of its social engagement, Fairy Tale was a sign of things to come and that his art has become increasingly preoccupied with what he calls the tangled connections between politics and reality. Another turning point happened the following year when the Sichuan earthquake caused the deaths of more than 5,000 school children, a tragedy covered up by the Chinese authorities and relentlessly exposed in art and activism by Weiwei Wei ever since. Due to his blogging and social media activity, Weiwei Wei gained increasing attention from the authorities who set up CCTV cameras around his studio, one of the many potent modern objects he's since painstakingly made in marble as part of his work. That surveillance eventually led to his detention and since then he's increasingly turned to documentary forms as his primary means of expression. A series of films reflect his recent campaigns, Cockroach addressed pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, Coronation explored the coronavirus lockdown in Wuhan, China, and Human Flow explored the global refugee crisis. Because of the notoriety of Weiwei's political activities, much of his work outside of activism is less well-known. His artistic journey was slow. After Mao's death, as China began a cultural thaw, he was loosely affiliated to the countercultural art group STARS, but his artistic awakening really began in New York between the years 1981 and 1993. There, he encountered the work of Warhol and Duchamp and began making his first forays into a conceptual but object-based practice. He lived briefly with the Taiwanese performance artist Te Ching Se, while Se performed rope piece in which was tied to the artist Linda Montano every day for a whole year. Though Weiwei Wei had exhibitions in New York, he achieved little attention at the time. He made his money in various ways, from drawing caricatures of tourists to capturing protests and police brutality in Tompkins Square Park, one image of which appeared in the New York Times in 1988. It was only when he returned to China in 1993 that he began to build what became his mature language. He found that ancient and historic artifacts and furniture were widely available and began dramatically transforming them. He painted one with the Coca-Cola logo, had himself photographed while dropping another to the floor and smashing it, and covered others in pop art hued paint. He would take Ming and Qing-era furniture, dismantle it and reassemble it into non-functional sculptural forms with the same precision and craftsmanship with which they were originally made. At the same time, he acted as a leader of the Chinese contemporary art scene, documenting it in three publications, the black cover book, white cover book and grey cover book. Objects crafted in fine materials and with loaded meanings continue to be a crucial part of Weiwei's work today. He's made everything from takeaway boxes and chopsticks to handcuffs in jade and he's made blue and white porcelain decorated with images of global issues like migration and war. Perhaps his most famous sculpture work is Circle of Animals, Zodiac Heads, a group of 12 bronze animal heads reconstructing those looted from the Spring Palace in Beijing by the French and British colonial forces in the 19th century. That work was first shown in 2010 and is still touring the world today. For a decade or so after designing his own studio, he pursued a dual career as artist and architect through his architectural studio Fake. Eventually he developed the design of Beijing's Bird Nest Stadium with the Swiss practice Herzog and Meuron. But the architecture quickly faded as his activism took on greater significance. Though he rightly says that his political activities gained momentum in the mid-2000s as his anti-government blogging became the centre of his work, it had long been part of his practice. In parallel with those mid-1990s iconoclastic sculptures were a series of photographs. In one, he took a picture of his partner, Lu Qing, lifting up her skirt in front of the palace in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, the site of a massacre five years earlier. And a year later, he raised his own middle finger to the same building and took a photograph of it. This is the first work in his series, Study of Perspective, which continued until 2017, with the gesture being repeated in front of a host of the world's tourist hotspots, including the Eiffel Tower in Paris, the St Mark's Basilica in Venice and the Sydney Opera House. He said that Study of Perspective is not just an artwork, but a manifesto. And I began our conversation by asking him, what did he mean by that?
1: Well, I don't know. I said it's some artwork, but it definitely is a manifesto. The time I did it is uh, 1995, around that time. What happens in Tiananmen Square is only six years apart. And uh, that demonstrate to the world Chinese government have uh, crashed down most peaceful demonstration. In front, of the whole world, everybody watched it, because CNN and other news outlet was there. So it's so much feelings when I, after twelve years, be apart from China. Finally, I landed in Beijing and uh, to see the last moment of my father. I have nothing to do in China, you know. I feel, no matter how China is struggling, still, they never changed a bit in terms of a political and uh, ideological argument. as There would always be, and still remains, as a authoritarian state, which is not abstract words. They would always sacrifice the mind and the life of the whoever would make any kind of argument. So my silent pose to Tiananmen, which is the symbol of the nation, the new nation, but of course it's old left over from Qing dynasty, but still everybody thinks that is the symbolic architecture of china so i give my left finger and uh, take uh, some kind of self post uh, image that is very quiet and that is only
0: remind
1: me i am here and i'm showing my attitude my standing point my position my perspective to the current situation. So it is manifesto of an individual.
0: One of the things about the way that your work is often viewed is that it's entirely a response to China, but it's a response to the world, isn't it? Because you've replicated that gesture in many places, including in Venice, for instance, and and, and elsewhere. So you, your attitude is a global reflection. It's not merely a gesture towards China itself. By 189, I think the basically
1: the cold war is over the berlin wall collapsed and uh, you know the the soviet has to dismantled into different states even the name changed and uh, with the victory of the western world i started to questioning myself what would be the ultimate conflicts in coming century or what is the future like. So somehow I predicted the ultimate struggle would be the state power and the individual, the collected power from the political sectors, business, economy, culture, and with the individual's uh, freedom, the definition about being an individual. So under that kind of understanding, which I think was uh, quite uh, visionary on my side, and wherever I go, you know, I start to make this ridiculous image. And I call that theory called the study of perspective, which is, it can be perspective of the Renaissance, you know, when they start to learn how to do perspective. And this can be more, It's more political perspective. Indeed. So, under that, I have hundreds of images in all kinds of conditions.
0: I wanted to ask you about documentary, because, of course, this has become a major strand in your work. But, of course, it was always a a major strand in your work. There's the famous work that you made that got published in the New York Times in the 1980s that you took. And documentary has run through your work. And you said also that you see what's in front of you as a ready-made. And is that a sort of documentary impulse, do you think? It's about reality and documenting reality.
1: I think the question about documentary is about how an individual who would confront with so-called reality. And uh, very often we are not ready, and most likely we are not uh, uh, in the position to interpret so called uh, the truth, or even just to document the, uh, see it as a part of the facts, helping us to have a gazing in the what's happening and also to relook at it in the future. To relook at something in the future time is most important. For human understanding, because it's like plant seeds to wait for its seeds to grow, but of course that seeds will take long time. You know, some insects would stay underground for seven years or more to come out the ground to finish the life cycle. And uh, you know, in the nature, not everything is you can just grab it and uh, to have a harvest like in the supermarket. And today's life is very much has moral deficiency or problems because since everything comes is ready, and uh, we are forgetting the process, the long time of uh, hope or eager or prepared or, you know, for this lacking of this kind of, immediate results so our desire become very superficial and cheap because we always try to exclude the necessary time location and the difficulties so documentary is most important for my study and for my mental possibility to reach adjust myself
0: that's really interesting and obviously you talk about difficulty there and i know that you've said that that things that come easy aren't worth doing. And it seems to me that underpins so much of what you do, whether it's creating the surveillance camera in marble and all those incredibly finely worked objects, but then also the sort of incredible effort that went into something like fairy tale. So the work always emerges almost from a struggle, would you say?
1: For myself, the simple measurement about the work, basically I have to say all the work's Doesn't matter what kind of idea I put in, it will end up meaningless. But what is meaningful is effort I try to structure and to follow my concept and to meet all the difficult tasks, unthinkable, unpredictable situation. That not only give me the better understanding, of the work, but also exams if my original concept works or not. So that's the total meaning of life.
0: In the Kettle's Yard exhibition, we're talking right now, you're sitting in Cambridge and the exhibition at Kettle's Yard opened a week or so ago from when we're talking. And in that show, you very directly confront fakeness and authenticity. And this has been an abiding concern of your career. Tell me what interests you most in that idea of authenticity and fake?
1: <laughs> I grew up in ideological communist society. The purpose of life being told is trying to find the truth. And uh, of course, we ended up become uh, in a situation which is farthest from the truth. And, uh, you know, every line, every story, every historical memory has been either erased or converted to into something else. So then I look at uh, individual life or state propaganda, East or West, communist or capitalism. Then you can see what dominates us besides our sincerity and our fight for the truth. But what dominates is... Always uh, misunderstanding or misleading or completely forced conclusion from a so-called truth. That's our reality, and uh, doesn't matter how how much effort we are putting in. Uh, it seems that uh, reality is still dominating. So I like to have a show to put so-called material facts, not truth, but facts, and with. Uh, the one really can be identified by time, place, expert, and the document as a, a true facts. And also something which is so close to the truth, but possibly it's a, a copy. And also my effort in using the cultural, political, artifacts facts as ready-made to re examine our human struggle.
0: Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved?
1: <laughs> From time to time that... Uh, it changes, but if you talk about the first artist had the effects on me and uh, then you talk about the visual artist, I guess then I would say March Duchamp, who is uh artist or not so artist artist because he spent most of his time playing chess game yeah. or or uh you know, to enjoy his uh kinda kinda bourgeois life. But still, he opens the door to a much broader uh, view and to drag art once again into the intellectual practice, which art should always be.
0: Indeed. I'm really intrigued that in the book you said that you were so overwhelmed when you first saw Duchamp's work in Philadelphia that you didn't actually take note of his name. So he, he became almost a mythical figure for you almost immediately. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's a mystical, and still it's mystical to me, but uh, sometimes you like the mystical to remain as mystical, because we don't want to know why. you know, the astronaut went to the moon to find the moon, it's just a piece of wasting land. We still want to, to see the moon through Tang Dynasty poetry, it's so beautiful. So the scientific research doesn't bring the human society into a better condition that's a perfect example
0: tell me about duchamp and the creation of that work hanging man which was a coat hanger you bent into the profile of duchamp (laughs) the work itself
1: called homage to md that was uh, at the moment i live in brooklyn under the Williamsburg Bridge, and I was poor. I was couldn't find uh, how to pay the next month's rent. But you know, at that time you always have a coat hanger in the when you move in any apartment in the drawer. So I played with it. I made his uh, you know his profile, and I enjoyed that. You know, that's probably the only effort which is worth to be mentioned in the my twelve years of. Uh, uh US uh, struggle. <laughs> well, I
0: don't know though because also you did that piece which it seems to me is super powerful which is the violin with the handle of the shovel which seems you know it's 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 very Duchampian in its own way but it's twisting Duchamp in a new direction.
1: It's uh, it's true it's like my secret love but that time U.S. is uh, or the world is talk about German expressionists, I, which I have no interest in, and I don't like Romanticism or expressionism in my life. I like rationality and humor and poetic and fine craftsmanship. And uh, so I had a little show in Soho, and this little critic appeared on newspaper. The title is "I Will His Heart Belong to Dada." I feel so proud about myself and mentioned that if Duchamp still knows this show or and would, you know, have a smile on his face. So I I feel so satisfied, you know, just by someone realise I'm uh, an admirer of uh, Duchamp's work.
0: Um, in the book, you said that your father kept a an album of images of works by Rodin deep in a drawer in your home. Um, but it was interesting to me that you said that you, you you had admired those in the album. But when you saw Rodin the flesh in that same time that you saw the Duchamp, it left you cold. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, my father have this little album of Rodin on a deep drawer, you know, hiding somewhere because it's all about nudity, sculpture yeah. of a, a love or case or, you know, I... I was in my teens, I found that, and every time I would look at it, my face would turn hot and, (laughs) you know, burning. You think about it in the communist society to see a rodent and uh, crazy. And uh, because with imagination, you can burn yourself into ashes. But when I see the real sculpture, it's just a cold piece of rock and, uh, you know, it's suddenly lost the possibility of imagination. So that is very much about uh, religious belief. The belief itself is more important than actual the truth or fact because uh, it burns you from inside.
0: And tell me, which historical artist do you turn to the most today?
1: that's very hard to name it. I I start to pay more attention to early Oriental art, you know, because it's a very different uh, perspective from the Western tradition. And they they always associate humans' uh, uh, cultural interpretation with environment, nature, and uh, that has certain beauty in there.
0: I'd like to know more about that moment when you returned to China in 1993 and you said that at that time suddenly antiques were very affordable and very visible and you assembled this enormous collection in your yard, effectively, of them and that began that process of reinterpreting. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Well, in the he China started to develop. Everything goes. Everything it's digging. Find tremendously among the, of the underground objects are found, and they ended up in the market people just selling it and uh, basically there's no regulation so that time easily you can spend a week to structure a museum which can be the highest quality museum in most nations it's just so much everything jade bronze furniture, anything. So fortunately, that's the moment I was drawn into that and gave me a a very intensive study of the past and how and why and, uh, you know, they make those kind of objects and how style changes, what's new, what is past, how it relates to each other. (laughs) That's the moment I... I still think that's historical. It cannot repeat itself. And, uh, yeah, it's it's almost like unreal.
0: And, of course, there was the seminal work from that period is of you dropping the hand in a stiern. Um Tell me about the circumstances of making that work because it's, is it right that your brother took the photograph?
1: My brother with me, we go to the antique shops daily. We, I would pick up uh, two type of uh works. One is, you call it, uh, standard. That means that reflects the common quality and the knowledge about a period, such as Han Dynasty vases. And another type is commonly not recognized, but I would think that's rare. Uh, In other words, because no definition, but certainly they come to, from one period of time, uh, bears important information. People cannot even name it. So that's a two types of things I'm buying. But very often, the commonly accepted works such as Han Dynasty versus I feel a little bit boring because it's already belongs to some kind of intellectual property. And uh, so one day at I was joking with my brother because at that time I'm not recognized as an artist, but rather no profession and uh, hanging around. So I said, let's try your, this F3 camera, Nikon camera, to see if you can catch the image of that falling down. He said, really? I said, yes. He's, you know, he always enjoys my stupid acts. <laughs> And uh, yes, we tried the first one. He missed it. I can't <laughs> tell he missed it because, uh you know, I have a strong experience with that and uh but that time you cannot examine It's not like today you have a digital you can easily to see what is there. that time you have to take a films. So I said, let's make sure we we got it. We have to do the second one, and uh the idea to do it is. You take first photo, I'm not going to release it, but the most important is the second photo, once it's dropped to half before it's landed. So he gets the second one, then the third one easy. It's smashed. It's not going to move. So, yeah, but I didn't publish or even to think on what to do. With this kind of photo besides it is kind of humorous act. Till many, many years later, I have an exhibition. Almost 10 years later, I, I printed out. Because I was shy then to write my professional career. Always have a 10 years gap. I cannot mention anything I did. You know, no exhibitions, no any activities. So I would, digging out some images can be demonstrated as a deception. So that's one of them. It's a bit shy about it because the same work with penta uh, Coca-Cola on the hands vases or middle finger is just so casual, so meaningless and uh, so childish. But ironically it become my symbolically the and that is identify me. <laughs> As an artist, uh, how shameful! But you know, history is always like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and also, you sort of continue the mythology around the work, don't you? In a way, because in the Kettle's Yard exhibition, there is a new presentation of that work, but realized in Lego. So, can you tell me why did you realize it in Lego? I was I was just curious about that choice of material.
1: I always try to destroy the understanding of the establishment. When people think that's iconic, I said, okay let's play with Lego, so anybody can structure it with very different meaning. So that, I think, successfully I did that, you know, make it more childish.
0: Absolutely, and, but also it's about pixelation as well, it seemed to me. It looked like, it when you're approaching it, it looks like a pixelated image, almost like an online image.
1: Yeah, the pixelized image is very much you can, if you want to resource it through art history, is belong to... Greeks and Romans uh, with their mosaic works. I like it because uh, with limited resource, you know, Lego with very limited color and uh, which gave uh, an image another possibility to show it in a very different way. So it's the, the way to structure it uh, as the pixelization is very much related to computer, internet, and the design world. So that opened up the whole door for me.
0: You mentioned historic furniture there. And quite early on when you began working with historic furniture, you, it seems to me right from the start, knew that you wanted immaculate craftsmanship in these representations of the furniture. Why was it so important to you to achieve that extremely high quality?
1: This is interesting when we talk about so-called authenticity or real originality. Uh, In Chinese tradition, you always learn the past by copying it, you know, to, to understand the profound knowledge about why they did that way. And so the best way to understand it is to dismantle it and to do study, and then you structure it, and maybe you use the same method to make something contradiction to the original, but at the same time support the argument in the other way. So to have a doubt coexist with the original is so important in human intelligent uh, development, but that requires both so-called originality and the fake. Without one, the other would not exist.
0: A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 60 cultural institutions through a single download. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll find a range of digital guides to venues where you can see art outside, including the Yorkshire Sculpture Park in Northern England, one of numerous places where Weiwei has shown his monumental Circle of Animals Zodiac Head series, and the Socrates Sculpture Park in Long Island City, New York, where he took part in the group show Do It Outside. The app's guide to Socrates Sculpture Park offers a range of content relating to the park's present and past shows, digital features including conversations and performances, and an interview with Socrates' founder, the artist Mark Di Severo. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. The app's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I wanted to ask you about contemporary artists, which contemporary artists do you most admire?
1: If I ask that question very often, I have to look at a mirror. That's <laughs> true. It's my answer. you know I have to be honest, you know, I have to think somewhere, have complexity, and still have this can make a contradictory argument, and always relate to aesthetic and philosophical argument. And uh might be a lot, but my knowledge is very limited. So I have enough fun to study myself.
0: I wanted to ask about Tesshin Se, who you lived with in New York and actually witnessed this extraordinary performance that he did with Linda Montano, where they were tethered together. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that must have been such an extraordinary moment as a young artist, to be surrounded by an artist who was engaged in this extraordinary durational performance, while you yourself were, in a way, in the very infancy of your artistic life.
1: Well, he's interesting, I would say, you know, as a character, as a living person. But his practice is not unique. If you turn uh, to look at the Buddhist practice for lifetime, with one belief or one act. To see life is, for art as a form of life itself, which in the Buddhist or some some kind of religious practice is completely not just normal but necessary.
0: I I wanted to also ask you about in your black cover book, it's a an extraordinary document of a particular moment in Chinese art. And so one of the curious things about you is that there's a sort of generosity to a wider scene of Chinese artists at that time, but you've also sort of stood apart from them to a certain degree, operated it very much in your own way. Can you tell me about that relationship? Because it, you documented that scene very broadly in your black cover book and white cover book and grey cover book, but you also are separate from it.
1: Since I have uh, experience in New York, which played uh, a great potential of my later practice, and I have deep understanding about the temporariness of contemporary. So once I was in China, I always think I have to leave uh, some kind of record for the future when they look back. Because people are eager to, to become successful or to grab something, and very often we lost the perspective, time, location, and how do you put it in the historical context. So I'm much better prepared for that. I'm never eager to show my work or to to even to have a sense of myself but rather to say to provide a possibility for certain culture to to grow you know to to provide that kind of temperature or environment so i think that's much more important to hanging a painting in a on a white room or you know or to appear in certain magazine both are not existing in china so i made the publications and uh, made the underground uh, happenings just between a few artists and trying to to encourage people go underground and uh, you know that's a most meaningful time and uh, to realize how to make your work deeply just to serve your own self than to share it with the public.
0: And and also, of course, one of the things that you did as part of that process was that you documented Zhang Wan's 12 square metres performance, which, of course, also related to your father, which was there's this curious connection with your father's, you know, being forced to clean lavatories.
1: Well, that generation, young artists are uh, really always... Asking my advice to give them some kind of, because I come back from New York from a so-called East Village, so I always uh, trying to tell them to pay attention to your own situation is most advantage you can do to yourself. Do not dreaming about New York or any place else. They should uh, mirror your condition and they should evaluate your work with. Absolute uh, situation you have. So he dedicated that work to to my father, and uh, I probably two or three only person made the documentation for that work, and that eventually become his uh, most notable work.
0: Indeed, what do you have around you in the studio? Do you have other artists' work on the walls around you, or or photographs? I
1: often look at my studio or my apartment in Beijing or in Berlin or in now in, in Lisbon, Portugal. I would say if uh, someone broke into my apartment, they would uh, just immediately turn and say, this is wrong. You know, it doesn't have a single work hanging there. I figured out, you know, what's wrong with me because every artist always have a uh, full of they never feel that the wall is not enough therefore more works hanging in their location i hate to look at my works you know i don't like them that much and uh, i always looking for next work and uh, that uh, give me uh, some kind uh, initiate why i have to do it and uh, if there's work is only in between the process and uh, so I have to examine it. But once it's finished, I never hang in them. So it's no works.
0: Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently?
1: I only visit historical museums. And uh, I was deeply impressed about historical museums in Egypt. And that's the last time I'm deeply impressed. But if I go to any location, I always find much more meaningful lessons or knowledge about the
0: past one of the things i'm really interested in was that you wrote about moma and when you wrote about moma you talked about the effect that being in a museum collection can have on an artist about that idea of being just banished to a storeroom or whatever tell me more about that
1: someone come from a society you know always have a criticism or self-criticism you know that's how we raised up to look at the world with a very critical eye. That that may not necessarily to be right, but critical habit or training is always there. So, of course, I have been very critical to the contemporary art, Western collections, so much self-indulgent and uh, uh, nonsense. And, uh, you know, it's all because of the commercial world and uh, and seems they have to have some hero rather than to to have a meaningful argument. And uh, so this kind of iconic type of thing is what modernism should destroy rather than to make a, a new temple to worship those kind of nonsense. So yeah, that's basically my problem with those contemporary art museums. That put contemporary art far from reality and uh, become less audience because they are so arrogant and uh, so nonsense. It's just uh, unbelievably how far our so-called uh, this intellectual behaviour are so disconnected with any intelligence and rationality.
0: Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world?
1: You know, I'm not a very cultured man. I never had a good uh, university study, and uh, even high school is also not so... I cannot be proud of my reading experience or my learning, you know, the knowledge. But still, I'm uh, very keen about my treasure is sense of nowhere, doesn't belong to any this existing traditions and always being seen as someone who questioning or doubt about uh, my condition it's not about the others it's rather by how to find a comfortable location to to stand and that is seems not easy
0: i, I wanted to ask you about what I think was a sort of life-changing cultural experience that you created for others, which is fairy tale in Castle at Documenta, which was this extraordinary endeavour where you brought over from China 1,001 Chinese people to Castle, to the centre of Documenta. Can you tell me more about that and what were your intentions with that work?
1: I was coincidentally being introduced to Documenta even before I had a gallery, you know, so... My immediate response is, I'm not going to show you a painting or sculpture to this uh, art community gathering, but rather to give some kind of suggestion which will remain as a question or as a fairy tale. So to challenge that, I decided to bring 1,000 Chinese to see document and to select those people from online activity. That time I was quite, uh, skillful and very attracted about the internet so that only can be done in a very short time through the internet and uh, of course to bring one thousand chinese who has no art education most of them are never being traveled and uh, they can never even dream to see a art show what is art show but uh, rather the understanding of art are completely different from a chinese persons and. Something like document, and they will never think that's our show, but rather a construction, half-constructed mm-hmm. <laughs> a site, or. So, for me, it's a earlier imagination about globalization and the Chinese vastly become dominating, because that's long before that. And, uh, you know, that town, they haven't seen maybe five Chinese before, now suddenly you see so many Chinese, but now, of course, everywhere you can see Chinese. So many, because they are one six of the world population. So it's a really nice project, because nothing left, is only the memory and the documentation of how those people made it possible to go to there.
0: talk about literature which writers or poets do you return to the most
1: i miss the time i should spend time in literature that time my father was uh, cleaning the public toilet i was helping him burn all his beautiful collections and but still have a chance to read some poetry he collects you know early poetry but that's too early like whitman Walter Whitman or or Mayakovsky or Pablo Neruda or Rimbaud, you know, all those type of uh, early 20th century poetry and literatures. But uh, later, I don't have much time to read. And uh, I appreciate reading. I like to buy books, but uh, I have no time to read.
0: One really interesting thing about your work, I think, is that is that in a way through blogging, through the existence of Twitter, you found a kind of means of writing in the way that your brother was a novelist. Obviously, your father was a hugely famous poet. But but your form of writing really came into its own when you sat down in 2005 and wrote your first blog. What did that form of writing allow you to do that you hadn't had before, perhaps?
1: my writing has the character not being influenced by others so could be the only character because uh, i love writers but only limited knowledge like uh, like a kafka's writing or you know it's very limited knowledge uh, about writing or like a mactoons writing or you know all those kind so people as a writer, they look at my blogs they said at writing, the writer cannot write that way. But that gives the character of my writing. So it's very plain, very direct. And uh, it's always, I never really have something to decorate the idea, but rather to be plain nudity of the original meaning of a vocabulary. So I try to achieve that. But of course, it takes long time training and the skill. And uh, I'm still far from uh, being a skillful rider, But that's always nice. You have a space and uh, you can work on.
0: I wanted to ask about a work of yours that I saw that I found very moving, which was your father's chair, which you had made in marble. And it seemed to me to say so much about, you know, the history of art is full of empty chairs, but it was a perfectly worked rendition of a very ordinary chair, which he sat in. Could you say more about that?
1: I think the deepest uh, emotion in our heart is something we cannot describe it. And uh, that's why it remains there. Once we can clearly describe it, it will disappear. So many elements, I made it as a piece of art because I want to protect them from the rationality.
0: And so you did that with that piece because in a way it entombed an emotional response to your father.
1: It's true. I think uh, something is emotional should remain as emotional rather than to use verbal to describe it. And uh, like uh, philosopher Wittgenstein said, the unspeakable sense should remain silent.
0: What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I never listen to any
1: music. So sorry, I have to be frank. You know, I never turn on any music. I admire people who love the music every time. Once they listen to it, I can appreciate it. But it's just somehow in my brain or my heart, I cannot storage it. And uh, I'm, believe me, I'm directing Puccini's uh, Toronto. In two days, I'm uh, flying back to Rome, continues the, the directing under the May sec, my May 20th. Or be opening for the Turandot, but I feel so so bad. It's like it's like I'm a crippled person, but I still selected as a, uh, some kind of sport game. Of course, I will do my all my effort to show how incapable.
0: But for instance, when you're working on Turandot, did you listen to the opera in in terms of your preparation for that?
1: I have to listen to enormous times, and uh, even this morning, I was still listening to it. Of course, I can sense the emotion and the uh, you know the narrative and of the you know how the music being structured. But for me, that's a not a natural act. For me, silence is more natural and always winning.
0: What other media influence your work?
1: I work on anything. You know, I can grab um, photography, videos, and uh, anything.
0: I was intrigued by the fact that you said that a film by Eisenstein, October, <laughs> had influenced that piece that you made with the chandelier and the scaffold. Can you say more about that?
1: Well, early memory is such an imprint on my later activities. It's like... Uh, Everything happened in the later presentation, always somehow you can find traces in the early time, you know, that proved we are not born as some kind of genius, but rather, you know, we are born of the tragic, the mark has been put on us. Very often those marks are tragic marks.
0: And did you see Eisenstein's film in that period when you returned to China and Western films were sort of being shown in certain venues?
1: No, I see them when I was 21 years old. I enrolled in a film institute. That time, China still not open. There's no Western films except in the film class. We have two Western films present every week. So yeah, that's my first time see so many so called uh, modern classics.
0: If you could live with one work of art, what would it be?
1: That is very very limited uh, way to talk about. But uh, how should I put it? Because I always think life itself is you live with yourself and to examine. Uh, your own consciousness and your way of expression, but uh, still that is not just for you. But uh, in relating to others, you know the communication is always need uh, another one there. So you would not call it as art, which only benefits you yourself. Even you have a strong belief is made for yourself still. Uh, the necessity to say you made that expression and uh, I think it's essential but it's not enough and uh, yeah if you make a pencil just or make any mark on anything can be on sand on paper or on piece of rock that equally as important a so-called masterwork.
0: So lastly, what is art for?
1: Art is for self-conscious. Finally, it's to realise who we are.
0: Weiwei, thank you very much. Thank you. way The Liberty of Doubt, is at Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, UK, until the 19th of June. His show, Intertwine, is at the Serralves Museum in Porto, Portugal, until the 9th of July. The opera, Turandot, is at the Rome Opera House from the 22nd until the 31st of March. And his book, A Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows, is published by Bodley Head in the UK and priced £25, and by Crown in the US and priced $32. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentall. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Ai Weiwei. That's it for this series. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.